On this first day of Advent, this first Sunday of Advent, um, I just want to make y'all aware that it's not Christmas yet. Even though we've got this beautiful tree here, even though we've got this garland adorning the altar rail, even though the church is decorated beautifully here on the, uh, in the sanctuary, even though the tree is up and lit at the Hudson House and we've got all kind of red and green lights adorning the place, it's still, it's still not Christmas. Matter of fact, Christmas is a long way off, and, uh, and we have to wait for it. We have to wait for Christmas. Parker is already asking me and his mom if he can open up Christmas presents that are underneath the tree. And we keep having to tell him, no, because it's not Christmas yet, son. <laughs> it's Advent. And Advent is all about waiting. In order to get to Christmas, we have to wait. We have to exercise that Christian virtue patience. We have to push back against that human desire, that human nature, even that cultural desire for instant gratification. We don't go to Christmas. Christmas comes to us. The people of God lived in complete darkness, totally void of God's presence, totally void of any movement of God for 400 years prior to the birth of Jesus. God was silent for four whole centuries as his people waited, as his people endured all kinds of unimaginable hardships as they still looked ahead and they hoped and they waited for their promised Messiah. And then it happened out of nowhere. Salvation came to the world in the form of a poor, helpless, defenseless child who was born, by the way, to outcast parents. I always find that neat, I always find that cool, I always find that interesting that some of God's greatest work is always done through some of the most unimpressive, some of the most socially ostracized people. But here it was, hope had finally come after 400 years. Hope had finally come to the people of God, hope had finally come to all of those who would eventually believe. We remember and we look forward to uh, the birth of Jesus during Advent, which we celebrate on December 25th every year. But much like God's people back then, we still live in a world that's shrouded in darkness. We live in a world that's still shrouded and, and stained by sin. We live in a world that's tainted by political and by social upheaval, by violence, by poverty. We live in a world where death is uncertain, where death is certain, where disease and where disasters take the lives of millions of people each year. We live in a world of disunity. We live in a world of distrust where we're plagued by all forms, all kinds of fear, all kinds of worry, all kinds of depression, and all kinds of anxiety. Yet, as Christians, through all of this, we still have hope, which we emphasize on the first week of Advent. Because we have hope because we have a promise. We have a promise of that same Messiah, that same Jesus who brought humanity, the hope of salvation and the hope of reconciliation to God over 2,000 years ago is going to come back and he's going to finish what he started. We've got the promise that he will return not just us, but entire creation to its original intent. We have the promise of a new world and we have a promise of a world that is completely void of all of those things that I mentioned just a minute ago. It's the promise of a world and existence where love, peace, 
unity reign. It's a new created order where God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, where there will be no more death, where there will be no more mourning or crying or pain, just like the book of Revelation tells us. That's the hope of Advent. Remembering and celebrating, of course, the coming birth of Jesus while also living in what I call this time in between times, so to speak, patiently and expectantly waiting the return of Christ to make everything new, to make all things new. Christians have been hopefully waiting for Jesus to fulfill that promise ever since the beginning of Christianity, ever since his physical resurrection and ever since his ascension into the heavens as we read about in the Bible. The kingdom of God, y'all know that I love talking about this idea of the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God began with the birth of Christ. Jesus showed us what God's kingdom looked like through his life, the way that he modeled life for us, and of course, the what he taught us. And following Jesus, the kingdom of God became a movement through those early Christians, and it remains a movement through us today. That's, that's how I love, that, that's my preferred way of thinking about this whole idea of the kingdom of God. We talk about God's kingdom, try to define what does it mean? What does the Bible mean by the kingdom of God? What does the Bible mean? What does Jesus mean when he talks about God's kingdom? We oftentimes, and this is such a bad mistake that needs to be corrected, when we see those words, we oftentimes think of the afterlife of heaven, and that's very much included in God's kingdom. But it is fall, that, that, that understanding of it falls way, 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 way short. Jesus taught us how to live in God's kingdom on earth right here and right now. Again, y'all have heard me say this. That's why he taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, not after I die, but on earth as it is in heaven. And we are part of that movement just as those early Christians were 2,000 years ago. Matter of fact, there's one translation of the Bible that actually refers to that. Instead of calling it God's kingdom, it calls it God's movement or it calls it the movement of God through our salvation, through, our, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who resides in each one of us, we get to see the world. We can see the world past all this violence, past all this strife, past all this political and social upheaval. We can see through that, and we can see through the eyes of God. We can be his agents. We can be his ambassadors to the world around us exercising that radical love, that radical grace, that radical mercy, that radical forgiveness as we move through our daily lives. Christ followers, Christians, us, we, are the first glimpse of what's to come in the future when the reign of Christ is finally made complete. What a great honor that is. The Apostle Paul talks about this in the book of Romans. As a matter of fact, he talks about it in a number of places. But I want us to look uh, just for a minute at this particular scripture out of Romans 13, where Paul specifically addresses two things. He addresses both the return of Christ, and he also addresses how we are called to live as part of God's kingdom, as part of God's movement, as if that kingdom is already here, because it is. Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 11. Paul writes this, he says, And do this, understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. 
The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Let us put aside the deeds of darkness and let's put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. It's the word of God for the people of God. So if we were to basically just sum up those few verses from Paul, we see that Paul is exhorting Christians. He's exhorting Christ followers to fully live into that new identity that was given to us, that was given to them, that was given to us through nothing but our faith in the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. Remember, folks, that our salvation, this, this new life that Paul talks about, is a divine gift from God. It not only saves us from our sin, it not only reconciles us to God, it literally transforms us from the inside out. We begin thinking, we begin speaking, and we begin acting a whole lot differently. We begin thinking, speaking, acting a whole lot more like Christ, or at least hopefully we do. And then if we're fortunate enough, if we're fortunate enough to live a long life, we continue to be molded, to continue to be modeled more and more into the image of Christ as we learn to allow God to do the work that he wants to do in us. In short, we reflect the kingdom of God right here, right now on earth. We have the privilege of showing the world around us the beauty of what's to come and also the beauty of Jesus' reign again on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what Paul calls us to in these short verses. Y'all happen to remember a couple weeks ago uh, we were talking about Bible translate or uh, Bible biblical interpretation a little bit, and, and I told you guys you know a lot of times when you're when you're trying to interpret Scripture, uh, one of the thing one of the things you have to do in order to fully grasp the message and to order to fully grasp the context is you have to read between <laughs> or outside of the outside of the text. In other words, you often have to go backwards in the text to get full to fully understand what's going on in the one that you're focusing on. And, I, and, and, and really, you should read a good bit uh, beyond that as well because it gives you the bigger picture. It gives you the bigger context, and it gives you the bigger idea. Now, we can certainly glean a very good message uh, here from Paul if we just stuck to these few verses, but I think you get an even bigger message when you back up a little bit and you check out what Paul, what's going on back in Romans 12. I've talked to you guys a little bit about Romans 12 since being at Bemis, but I don't think that we've ever really, really dived deeply into it. Maybe we'll get a chance to do that one day. But basically in Romans 12, what's going on, Paul is describing what this new life in Jesus looks like. He gives us a bigger description of it. He particularly addresses what this new life in Jesus looks like within the context of a community. In other words, within the context of living together as brothers and sisters in a church, a local church, but also in the church, the larger, the global body of Christ. The very the second verse of Romans 12, y'all all know this, don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you. Again, there's that transformation. Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. He writes that in Romans 12 too. What you'll find in Romans 12, I oftentimes refer to it as Paul's Sermon on the Mount because there's so many similarities between the, what Paul writes in Romans 12 and what Jesus teaches in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 and 7, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. So in that second verse, Romans 12, he's, he's, he's talking 
He's talking to us about, about being transformed into the likeness of Christ. He goes on to talk about some more stuff that we all know that Christ taught us as well. Exercising genuine humility. Loving each other with authenticity. Honoring one another. Exercising patience. Practicing hospitality. Loving our enemies. Not repaying evil for evil, but conquering evil by doing good. All of that sounds familiar to you, right? Yeah, Jesus said all that before. So Paul's already addressing the church. He's already talking to them back in Romans 12 about how to live into this new life, this new life in Christ, especially within the context of our relationships with one another. Jump down to chapter 13, and he's still talking about these things. When we get to our verses today, he's still exhorting. He's still explaining how to live as Christians within the larger body, within the church. This time, though, he puts a particular focus on what he's talking about. Go back uh, to the, to the uh, verse 11, if you don't mind, Lorla. He says, and do this, understanding the present time. Or, as another translation puts it, know what time it is. Know what time it is. The time that Paul has in mind is the coming of the fullness of God's kingdom. Again, it's a time that began with Jesus and that will culminate when he returns. All creation is made new and Jesus finally reigns over all. That's the beauty of our Advent message. We're reminded first that God answered the people's long suffering anticipation of the Messiah's birth and we're also provided with the assurance that the long anticipated return of Jesus is also something that we can continue to hope for. Not just hope but it's something that we can ground ourselves in with absolute certainty. Know what time it is. Understanding present time and he calls us to wake up from our spiritual slumber wake up from your spiritual slumber he was telling these folks 2,000 years ago and he's still talking to us today and embrace Jesus as your way of life I suspect that a lot of people in that early church at the time were not living fully into that new way of life that Paul talks about. You've got to remember the early Christians, people have been looking for the return of Christ ever since he ascended into the heavens. The early Christians, and you read about this a lot in Paul's letters beyond Romans as well, the early Christians really thought that he was coming back at, no time, at any, any time. It could be absolutely any minute. They were expecting, expecting that to happen. So what was their response to it? And I don't mean everybody as a whole, as a generalization, but a lot of people responded to that not by abandoning their faith, but certainly by softening their faith. They relaxed their faith. They slacked off, as a better way of putting it, or another way of putting it, in their walk with Christ. They let their guard down, and they stopped living the lives that they were called to live. Well, if the guy's coming back right now, any time, why should I have to why should I have to really put any kind of effort into, into doing all this stuff or becoming all these things, right? Paul recognizes that, and he tells them to wake up and to stop sleeping. So many of us do that today, church. So many of us live half-heartedly in our faith. We fail to fully embrace this gift of new life that God's given us and that, and that gift that he wants to nourish and that gift that he wants to grow in us. We're content 
with having just enough Jesus in our lives, but we don't really want too much of Jesus in our lives. Folks, we fail ourselves miserably, and we fail others, and of course we fail God when we allow ourselves to do this. So that's what Paul calls us to. Not to walk through life half asleep, but to wake up to the beauty of our salvation and the life that God calls us to, the life that God allows us to have if we're fortunate enough to have 60, 70, 80, 90 years here on this earth for our own benefit, <laughs> and certainly for the benefit of the kingdom, certainly for the benefit of every life that we touch. Go to the final verse, Lorelai. Paul really gets to the meat of the message here and what he says next. This is how we live fully into the already but not yet kingdom of God. He writes, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Romans 12, going back to Romans 12, Romans 12, 1, by the way, starts with these words, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. How do we live fully as Advent people in hopeful expectancy of what's to come? We clothe ourselves with Christ. We clothe ourselves with the one, we talked about this last week, who was God in human form, who lived the most self-sacrificial life. Now, I'm not, I'm not just talking about the cross. I'm talking about the way he treated people, I'm talking about the way that he thought, the way that he moved through the world. Not an ounce of self-centeredness in him. That's our model. That's the self-sacrificial model that we clothe ourselves while we await that return, while we await that, that, that new creation that we're promised. Christ is a perfect example of that. We lay aside our selfish desires, whatever those may be, and we've all got them. And we clothe ourselves with the mind and the heart of Jesus. We become, we become the kingdom of God on earth until Christ finally brings that unexplainable fullness of the kingdom to its completion. And as my wife talked about with Parker this morning, he was talking about evangelism, basically. While we're doing this, we bring as many people as we possibly can along for the ride with us. Y'all pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the, uh, for the gift of Christ that we look forward to. Lord, we thank you uh, for the return of Christ that we look forward to. Help us to live in this. Help us to uh, not rush to Christmas, but to allow Christmas to come to us, to allow Jesus to come to us. Help us to use these next four weeks as a time of reflection, a time of anticipation, a time of gratitude, a time of thankfulness. And we do thank you. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you for the relationships that we have with one another and all the grace upon grace upon grace that you pour over us each and every day, each and every moment. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.